Blog Talk Radio. My name is Lisa Iannucci, and not only am I the founder and host of this podcast, I'm also the author of On Location, the film and TV lover's travel guide, which came out on March 1st. I'm so excited. It's so fun to go into bookstores and see it on the shelves. I'm also excited to announce that I'm going to be doing a book signing at Book Expo in New York City at the end of May. So visit bookexpoamerica.com to get your tickets and keep up to date about what guests and other author signings are going to be there. It's an overwhelmingly amazing expo, and I mean the word overwhelming in such a good way because if you love books or TV or even anime, comic books, anything like that, you know, this is the place for you to go. Uh, You'll be able to meet authors and celebrities, and it's just – it's so much fun. So please support the book industry and the authors who write them. So I've been busy seeing movies over the last few weeks. I saw Black Panther, The Shape of Water, and A Wrinkle in Time, among others. Two out of the three I loved. I wasn't a fan of The Shape of Water, but I loved Black Panther, and Wrinkle in Time was one of my absolute favorite books growing up. Yes, there were some differences from the book to the movie, but overall I was pleased that I actually saw it twice because another friend of mine grew up with it and she wanted to go with somebody who loved it as much as I did, so I went with her. So I had a chance, being the film and TV travel buff that I am, I looked up where Wrinkle in Time was filmed, and part of it was filmed in a small town in New Zealand called Wanaka. Now, I didn't say Wakanda, so if you're a Black Panther fan, you might think that's a real place, but it isn't. However, Wanaka is, and it should definitely be on your list of film and TV locations to see. I looked it up. It's beautiful. So the article that I came across was actually a Vogue article, and if you go to my Twitter feed at Virgin Traveler, you'll be able to see the link to the article and the all about Wanaka and where they filmed where they filmed the wrinkle in time. So before we get to this week's interview, let's give a shout out to this week's real travel sponsor, Greg Antonell, and his company, Mickey Travels LLC. Mickey Travels is an authorized Disney vacation planner and one of a few select few travel agencies in the world to be designated by Disney destinations with platinum earmark status. They're nationally recognized as a leader in planning magical Disney vacations. Is there any other kind of Disney vacation other than magical? And their services are always 100% free. Visit their website at mickeytravels.com, or you can find them at Twitter at Mickey Travels. Thank you so much for supporting me and sponsoring this episode. My guests on today's episode are David and Rena Kine from the Niles SNA Silent Film Museum in California. 
silent movies. Now think of that, because with all of today's loud, multi-million-dollar blockbuster films out there, like The Black Panther and like Star Wars and like all, all the other ones and Pacific Rim and everything, there is still a market and a desire to see old, silent films. So today we're going to go back in time to talk about the great films and actors of the silent film era and talk about what you can expect to see at this awesome museum. So please enjoy this interview. Okay, everybody. So this week I'm going silent. All right. Well, not exactly, although my husband would be happy to hear that. But on this episode of Real Travels, however, what I mean is I'm going silent films. And I am so excited because that's really where my love of film started was when I was sitting in, in my film class and I mean when it just took it to a whole new level for me when I saw all the new fit all the not new, but all the old silent films and they were new to me and I just fell in love with it. And today we're gonna talk to David and Rena Keen of the Niles S N A Silent Film Museum in Fremont, California. How you guys doing? Doing good. Good. Terrific. Well, welcome to the show. And before we get into talking about the museum, you know, I I actually had dinner with a friend of mine tonight, and I asked her if she watches silent films, and I picked the right person because she actually had a dad who would play these silent films for for her and her her her, uh, siblings when they were little, and, but it we both agreed that it's kind of hard to find people that we know anyway today that watch silent films. Talk to me a little bit about, is there, are there people really still watching silent films? Oh yeah. Um, the uh, San Francisco Bay area in particular is a really great place to see silent films. Uh, not just at our museum, but, they're occasionally shown at the Pacific Film Archive in Berkeley, various uh, festivals in San Francisco, at the Stanford Theater in Palo Alto. So you've got a lot of different ways to see them here, in, at least in San Francisco. Rena, let me ask you, too, about this, because we're talking today's big blockbusters, Marvel movies, $200 million movies. What's the draw? What do you think then if people are still coming, especially in your area, to see silent films? What's the draw to go back and watch these films? Why is there still an appeal? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the star power, the people that were in the films. You know, as as Gloria Swanson said in Sunset Boulevard, they had faces then. I mean, they just... The, the the lighting, the look, the camera shots, the black and white cinematography is absolutely amazing in many cases. Uh, the comedy stunts could never happen today without some form of CGI. I mean, when that house falls over Buster Keaton and he's still standing there, that was a real thing. I mean, kind of <laughs> crazy stuff that honestly just couldn't couldn't happen nowadays, I think. Um, also, there's musical accompaniment, which is just brings it into a whole other whole other perspective. I mean, a, d- a different way of communicating. It's a different kind of storytelling. And uh, it, it's just, it, it just really takes your breath away, some of the films. I mean, some of the things, just like today's films, some of them are good and some of them aren't so great. Some of them have some mm-hmm. things that you go, oh, my gosh, because it's, you know, uh, social mores of the past. But there's the ones that stand out, the ones that people go to see, like, you know, Nosferatu or Phantom of the Opera or 
a Buster Keaton comedy or a Charlie Chaplin film, any of those, they've just got something so special that makes them makes them work a hundred years later. And David, tell me a little bit about because you guys are obviously you know involved in the museum. You must have a love for silent films. Tell me a little bit about your love for silent films. How that came about. Oh, it started for me when I was a little kid. Uh, there was a uh, there wasn't any chances to see silent films on a screen, but uh, there was a program uh, in the late fifties, early sixties called Silence Please that uh, uh, I was first introduced to silent films, and then when I was a, a student in college in San Francisco, then there were a uh, whole bunch of different places to see silent films. So um, um, I just uh, had a, have had a lifelong fascination with it. I also know that he watched Fractured Flickers, which was put out by the same people as the Rocky and Bullwinkle uh, cartoons and such, yeah. where they took <laughs> silent films and cut them down into even smaller segments and just put laugh tracks and you know comedy bits and sound effects on them. So... That's what you told me, huh, David? Yeah, but the, um, they were still interesting to me, just seeing, you know, silent films are also a, a window onto the past, and uh, so I've always been interested in history as well, and it's an interesting way to see what things looked like 90 or 100 years ago. Now, as far as I am go, uh, I kind of came late to the party. I got involved because... I was living in Niles, which is a historic district in Fremont, and I heard about this silent film festival happening around the corner at the local schoolhouse. I mean, it was, I thought, what have I gone back to, like, Little House in the Prairie time, you know, just like a really long time ago? <laughs> it sounded so quaint, and so and so I, I went around the corner and uh, walked in the door, and there's these three people talking about Tom Mix and Texas Guinan and Bronco Billy Anderson, and... You know that one of them was David, uh, and that's how I, I met him. But uh, but that's how I got to know about silent films, and I got to see them up on the big you know big screen with piano music, and I just thought this is absolutely amazing. This is before TCM was around, um, and we don't have cable, so we don't even get to watch that. But uh, I think mm-hmm. the young people nowadays have a better chance to see silent films in exactly the way they should. Uh, other than maybe the large screen, they have big TVs nowadays. But I mean, they've got the proper speed and and a beautiful soundtrack and a good print of the film on uh, on TCM and other places like that. And I mean, they get a great chance to see the the films the way they were meant to be seen, other than not being on the big screen. You know, and I I hope that when they do see them, they they appreciate really the effort because. Some people might think, oh, well, it was a silent film. It's easy to make. And it really wasn't because you had to convey a story with your face and your motions, and you couldn't speak. And that, you ask some of the actors to do that today without just cursing to get emotion out or CGI, like you were saying, to, to, to show what's going on in a story. And they won't be able to do that. And it's such an underappreciated art that, they had to go through back then and, and took such a special skill set. Talk about that. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it is a different way of acting. It's, uh, I think in some ways it's more intimate and, uh, and direct to the person who is watching 
the screen, there you get an, uh, a different perspective because of the live piano music and uh, watching these people uh, conveying their emotions without talking. Uh, it's uh, uh, I've worked on uh, a silent film that we made here in Niles, and uh, uh, and the actors had to get used to working in a different way. It was it wasn't thing, something that they had to study extremely hard to get, but once they saw the first rushes of what they'd done, they immediately knew they needed to change things a little bit. <laughs> An easy example is if you watch The Great Train Robbery, and there's a little girl in the movie, and she does this overly and you know enthusiastic uh, 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 you know, hand to the brow and all that, you know, oh, my God, you're thinking, oh, my gosh, this kid's really overplaying it. But what's really, really important to know is that was one of the very first story films. She's trying to convey emotions. But what people didn't know, I mean, nowadays, if they watch it, that she was actually a trained stage actress, a little girl trained, and she's working in places, venues that don't have um, microphones. So she's trying to convey motion, emotions for the cheap seats. And all the, you know, up an entire theater. Well, you don't realize how that gets conveyed when you're being filmed. And so, you know, you see a movie ten years later, and people are much more natural, and they, you know, it just looks very different. But I have a lot, you know, when I explain to children about why this little girl in this film was doing it, overdoing it, they respect her a lot more because they understand now why she is doing what she's doing and it was just based on the timing of when this film was made it was so early made so early what about the fact too you know when i when i was talking to my friends tonight you know we were talking about the fact that people might think that the silent films were only like the the keystone cops this guy falls down or tie the girl to the tra- to the train tracks there were a lot of silent films that took on some pretty hard hitting topics and you know, you, you bring. She brought up like Birth of a Nation, you know, and 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 other films like that. So there, there's kind of that misnomer that that's all the the silent films were, were the goofiness. Talk a little bit about the other types of the films out there that actually had meaning and substance and more hard hitting topics. Um, there was a whole any social subject that you can think of today. They were talking about in the silent days. They were talking about drug addiction, alcoholism, prostitution, uh, dysfunctional families, uh, psychopathic killers, maniacs, all kinds of things. Women's know. rights were very important. I mean, there, you know, there were actually women directors like Lois Weber that talked about a lot of the issues of the day and today that people might actually say oh well she's got a little bit melodramatic and she was you know really um wringing her hands about some things but other people can look at the subjects and realize my gosh this woman was way ahead of her time i mean i introduced a film at a film festival that she made and it had to do with some things that i think are still really relevant today hypocrisy uh you know and saying oh well you can't be a loose woman but it's okay for your dad to be an adulterer, you know, that's, a, that's he's a man's man, but, but you're not allowed to as a young lady. Just all kinds of things like that. So, yeah, a lot of people like to think that things from the past were um, were that way, but 
you know, they were dealing with things, believe it or not, 100 years ago, like piracy was an issue, piracy of films, uh, and subjects that nowadays seem totally relevant, they were dealing with them back then as well. Uh-huh. I also might want to point out that even though they did, um, there was a lot of dramatic subjects, I think one of the important strengths of a silent film was comedy. Uh, there were so many great comedians, not just the big names of Keaton and Lloyd and Chaplin, but there were a lot of what you might consider lesser comedians who were still very funny and uh, and uh, and so I think comedy, visual comedy, was really great in the silent days. It also worked a lot with immigrants, people who, you know, they, they weren't able to speak the language and maybe they couldn't even read the title cards. But you know what? If if Charlie Chaplin's doing something funny, you're going to laugh and you don't even have to understand the words. And so it they, these particular, uh, I think comedy worked really well with audiences from all around the country and all around the world, too. In a lot of ways, they could see the same film all around the world, and it still it worked. It worked on le- several levels. Yeah, that, that, that was, that's my favorite thing, because Chaplin is, I mean, I think a lot of the movies transcended audiences, and, you know, like you said, it didn't matter if you had a language barrier. You can find, kind of follow what was going on, and, and you laugh at the right at the right spot, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and let, let's talk a little bit, too, because obviously for years, silent films weren't made, and then, boom, several years back, The Artist comes out, which is seriously one of my favorite movies ever made. I thought it was so well done. Um, did it bring back the interest in silent films? Did you notice after it came out that it sparked people's interest to come back to the museum? We definitely did notice that at our museum. And another film that came out around the same time was Hugo that uh, talked right. about George Melius. And uh, uh, we actually showed a bunch of Melius's original films uh, later that year. And, uh, and we were getting sold-out shows week after week. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, we called it the Hugo effect. <laughs> So, sure, wow. I mean, as the artist was able to bring uh, people to hear, you know, curiosity, but um, I think Hugo actually had a much bigger effect on us, uh, our attendance and people's interest. Is it a younger generation that you're getting through the doors, or was it an older generation that just wanted to, to see these movies again? Well, I mean, we do have some 80-year-olds, and, in fact, we have a 96-year-old who comes here and there, and uh, he saw the movies when they originally came out. <laughs> And uh, mm-hmm. I love the fact that I, I always bring um, bring him up when he comes. I always announce him because uh, it's kind of neat that he got to see the Phantom of the Opera when he was a young child, and he's getting to see it again for the second time, and he's 96. I mean, that's just a hoot. Wow. But, uh, yeah, and, and I can say that parents are pretty comfortable to bring their kids to the um, all the comedy shorts uh, nights, and mm-hmm. we have Laurel and Hardy and Little Rascals Talkies once a month as well uh, on a Sunday afternoon. And so we have a lot of parents, grandparents bringing the kids. Uh, for our other Saturday night shows, sometimes they come and there's, you know, dramas, and it's like, oh, okay, well, you know, we're good for the shorts anyway because a lot of times it gets, you know, after the kids' bedtime. But um, And we are showing a variety of films, so anywhere from comedies to dramas. We always have a couple of short subjects, and then we have an intermission, and then we show our feature 
So sometimes people come for the first hour to see the short subjects, because sometimes those are comedies, and then we might have a drama. Just kind of a mixed bag, similar to when people were going to see movies back in the day, and they would, uh, you know, see the serial and the cartoon and then the main feature. We we have that option. So uh, I can say that uh, there are also people in their 20s and 30s coming as well. Um, they Sometimes they're dressed up. They're from the Art Deco Society or they're doing it as a special event activity or they're bringing their friends for a birthday party. We get a lot of out-of-town guests, people coming from all around the world who have come to visit their family and friends, and those folks bring them to see our films and you know because it's such a novelty thing to do and that's really exciting when we're people getting people from uh everywhere from russia from france from you know florida wherever i mean they're coming from all over the place uh to see our films i know that if i lived out there i'd be there every weekend <laughs> i mean i i would i would you'd probably have to name a chair after me because this is just <laughs> and if you're in the area and you are not there on a regular basis, you're seriously missing out. But tell me a little bit, too, because you have this whole education department that talks to uh, school groups and gives tours. Tell a little bit about that. Sure. Well, we offer tours for seniors uh, as well as uh, kids. Uh, usually it's the fourth grade class because in the uh, California State curriculum, the performing arts thread for fourth graders, uh, allows people to go to see a play or a theater program. Well, also, there's two extra words in there between commas, silent film. So it allows that they can count this towards their school curriculum. Uh, we're able, when they come in the doors, we give them a tour of the place, show them around, show them the costumes and props and cameras and projectors. Uh, we show them a Chaplin film, a, possibly a Bronco Billy film, and then they make zoetrope strips and uh, actually put them in our working zootropes. And, uh, they, you know, they get to have an experience of what it's like to be in a, a theater. Uh, it's really exciting for the classes to do that. We have a group of 100 high school students that have been coming every year because they're part of a media class. And uh, they come here, they get the tour, and then they go out and they make their own silent film. We get college students come in. We had some folks from UC Berkeley who begged us for a talk about film, and I said, oh, okay, so you want to learn about what, filmmaking techniques? They said, no, we want to learn about film. We've never used it. We've never seen it. We want to, We know it's a thing. So David literally oh, pulled out a reel of film and talked to them about uh, the holes and talked to them about the emulsion and all that because they had no idea how it was used. And this is, you know, we're people that when we were kids, there was 12-year-olds running projectors for showing, you know, hygiene films at school. So, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm 52, and, and I, I remember that from my childhood. My fellow 12-year-olds were, were doing this. Or you could even go to the library, the public library, and check out a 16-millimeter projector and some films. That was before they were offering VHS tapes and DVDs. You could actually borrow a projector. So, so it's rather novel for me to realize that, you know, the young people today have not used them okay but they've never seen it yikes i mean that tells me a whole other world there with the digital world the way it is oh my head just dropped when you said that i was like <laughs> oh wow i can't imagine that that was one of the coolest parts about me studying film is actually holding the film in my hands and realizing the history behind it and when it was used and how it was used and it was just 
I was like a kid in a candy store, and you know, it was seriously like Christmas to me that I actually got a chance to do that, and it's so sad that that kids today won't have that chance. Oh, of course, unless they come over to your museum, you know, which is, that's what I love about it, and and there's more, like you talked earlier, too, about how there's so much to do in the area, and you mentioned a silent film festival. Talk a little bit about, do you guys work together? Do you, like, do all the silent film venues and everything kind of get together and help promote the silent film? Well, it works really well. The San Francisco Silent Film Festival is held at the Castro Theater, which is a 1,400-seat movie palace in San Francisco. Absolutely optimum way of seeing the uh, seeing films up on the big screen. Uh, they have orchestras and, and groups and performing the music, so it's quite amazing. David's actually been involved with it for over a decade, being part of one of the writers for the program booklet. So he was involved there. When they found out about our, about our museum and we became a bricks-and-mortar museum and we, suddenly, and we had uh, a, a museum store, they said, hey, why don't you bring your store and put it up on the mezzanine, sell some products, you know, give us a little, uh, a little help there. But, you know, otherwise you get to keep the profits. Um, it was a very generous thing for them to do. And so because of that, we've actually become part, an integral part of the, fil- of the film festival. Uh, people expect to see us there, and they buy the DVDs and the books and also the odd things we have. We have T-shirts with Charlie on it and some other things available that you can't find anyplace else. Uh, and so we become part of that. We have our own film festival, a Bronco Billy Silent Film Festival, that we hold in June. We may be bumping the date to another month, but it's around June. And then we also have Charlie Chaplin Days, which happens in July. But we've also had things like Buster Keaton Weekend. We had that in February where we had his nephew and several historians come and talk about things. Looks like we'll probably have W.C. Fields coming up next month, next year. So we, we try to keep things fresh. It's interesting because you talked about Buster Keaton. I mean, I know that there's, a, there's this Buster Keaton Museum in Pika, Kansas. I mean, it, people don't understand how much is out there. When I was researching my book, I mean, learning about William Hart, and there's a Hart Museum, and he was a, a silent film um, star, and that's actually also in California. I mean, there's just so much to see. What would you tell my listeners who are heading out to you for the first time? What kind of tips or suggestions would you give them about traveling to your area and seeing your museum? Well, I think, uh, you know, finding out maybe what silent films are all about. I mean, if they watch a show or two on the the TV or they get a DVD or something and they find out what they like. Um, But otherwise, you know, we tell people, if you're not sure about silent films, come to see a Douglas Douglas Fairbanks, you know, swashbuckling feature or come for a comedy shorts night if you're not sure if you're really going to hang with this, you know. Uh, And then they can stay for the drama or they can stay for you know, something that might be a little bit more sobering than, you know, um, wacky stunts. Um, But as far as if somebody's coming from the outside, I would say, well, if they send an email to me, I can give them a few tips. My email is PR, like public relations, PR at NilesFilmMuseum.org. And I would suggest they go to places like the Walt Disney Family Museum at the Presidio. Uh, Pixar is here, but I don't believe they do private tours, but it is pretty neat to know the studio's here. That there's, they actually have a tour online on YouTube. Um, to find out about films, there's also uh, City Guides in San Francisco. They do walking tours of all kinds of everything from the Barbary Coast to Chinatown. 
but a gentleman named Rory O'Connor has actually now has a silent film walking tour of San Francisco on Market Street, and he walks you around for a couple hours and shows you all kinds of things. So there's just all kinds of wonderful things to do. You can come here for a special weekend or come for the San Francisco Silent Film Festival and then check out a few other you know venues around for other kinds of uh, film fun. Uh, also, if you're in, down in Hollywood, uh, I would definitely check out the Hollywood Heritage Film Museum. That's actually right across the street from the Hollywood Bowl. It's at the, it's the original DeMille Lasky Barn, which was used in a film called The Squaw Man in 1914. But um, that's it, kind of our sister museum, and it's not a big bright lights and big city kind of. It's a little kind of feels like more like a small town museum, although it's all about Hollywood. It's just that it, you know, it has the same kind of uh, funding like we do. We're both nonprofits, and we're all volunteer run. How did you guys get involved in the museum? Well, we actually kind of helped create it. So I'll start out with David. Um, I was uh, working on a book about Bronco Billy and the SNA Film Company, and uh, starting in 1995, and uh, I was giving little slideshow presentations with photographs about the history and talking about what they did and. Uh, I gave a talk to the Niles Main Street Association here in Fremont, and uh, and they were so interested. They hadn't heard a lot of the stuff that I talked about before, and they uh, a few of their board members thought having a Bronco Billy Silent Film Festival might be a, a great thing to do because people had forgotten about him. So in 1998, uh, they started the first night. Uh, Bronco Billy Silent Film Festival, uh, which I helped with. It went on from there. We decided to become our own nonprofit in 2001, then moved into this 1913 Nickelodeon Theater building in, in 2004, and we've been showing silent films with live piano music for over 12 years now. Yeah, we started out as a, you know as a film festival only, and then the opportunity for the bricks and mortar happened. It was really, really uh, exciting and really scary because we all looked at each other and said, are you all in? And we just meant that we were going to be devoting our lives to making this place happen. So the idea of doing regularly every week silent film programs is just a little unheard of when you have about a dozen folks making this place, you know, regularly happen. We've got a few other volunteers on top of that, and we're definitely open to having additional people to help us do all different facets of the museum. But, uh, for us to do that, <laughs> it's a little wacky, but that's what we do. We have programs every Saturday night with live piano for, with silent films. We show the Laurel and Hardy and Little Rascals Talkie matinee the second Sunday of the month. And then the so third Sunday we show local independent films, documentaries, uh, films from our vault, all kinds of things. Like uh, next this month we're showing The Call for Cthulhu, a H.P. Lovecraft special, and then next month we'll be showing The Birth of a Sewing Machine documentary from 1930. So, And then we're showing uh, W.C. Field, David Copperfield in December. So we're all over the board. Wow. I, I, I have to thank you guys for the hard work that you, you've done in getting this museum off the ground and keeping it running and keeping the silent films alive. I just think that is fantastic, and, and kudos to both of you. I mean, if I, like I said, if I were in the area, 
not only would you be saving me a seat, but I'd be a volunteer as well. So uh, you can count on me if I'm ever in there to ever over there again to, you know, um, definitely be a part of this, um, much more active part of this. Anything I can do to keep the word going and, and keep in touch with you guys and let our audiences know what you guys have going on, I'm here. Lay it on me. I will spread the word as best as I can. And, um, you know, so thank you for all the work that you do. Um, now, you said you've talked about the weekends. You guys are only open on the weekends. Is that correct for, for the um, museum, like, to come in and, and watch the films? There's no during the week, correct? Um, right, yeah. Due to uh, the number of volunteers that we have right now, uh, it's just weekends, Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, mm-hmm. We do have the special tours that we give to groups during the week um, if we eventually we hope to find more people that we can expand to more days uh, mm-hmm. some, yeah I mean if somebody's coming in from outside and they're only going to be here on Wednesday afternoon and such they can make contact with us and we can try to work it out for them to come in and you know get a get a look-see around uh, we just can't mm-hmm. give them the, the full-blown tour to see everything but we often do yeah, we do. <laughs> there be there are sometimes so, I'm at the restaurant across the across the street and somebody's mm-hmm. peering in the windows and I've I've come over and said, "Would you like to see the place?" Oh yes, please. So, yeah, that happens nice. all the time. That's awesome. And tell our listeners um, your website address and and how they can reach you. Do you have a Twitter, Facebook? What, how can they keep in contact? Okay, so our website is www.niles filmmuseum.org our phone number is 510-494-1411 if people want to email and just ask more they can email PR like public relations PR at NilesFilmMuseum.org that pretty much gives you we do have a Facebook we do have Facebook it's under Niles Film Museum and also, so our listeners know, you actually have the ability to become a member. Um, there's a whole page of it on their website where you could go there and make a donation. Remember, this is a not-for-profit. These guys do a lot of hard work, volunteer. So any kind of donations to help them keep the museum going. Um, there's all different levels. There's students, senior, family, business, you know, all the way up to, to those of you who have bigger pockets. So feel free to dig in because this is definitely a worthy cause. I mean, I cannot ever imagine a time in my life where silent films are not accessible. I think it would be a very, very sad time for a lot of people. And thank you guys so much for coming on the show to talk about the museum and being a part of Real Travels. I'm so happy that you were here today, and I really appreciate everything that you guys do. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, that was a great interview, and to be honest, even after we stopped the interview, I think we talked for another 20 minutes, and hopefully I'll have a chance to bring David and Rena back on at another time, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, So I'm actually going to be off to Chicago, Illinois soon. I need a vacation, and for those of you uh, who may not be aware, um, last year I went through breast cancer treatment for stage 2 breast cancer. And I had to put my virgin traveler, real travel things on hold for a little while, but I am doing well and willing to get back on the road. 
and I wanted to go to Chicago to see the Chicago Writers Museum and especially to see the Museum of Broadcast Communications, which is home right now to the Saturday Night Live exhibit. And there's so many things I want to see, and I'll have so much to talk to you guys about in a future broadcast and be able to see things on my blog, thevirgintraveler.com, as well as on my Twitter page, at Virgin Traveler. I'll be back also with with more celebrity minutes in upcoming episodes. I've heard that people love those, love hearing about what celebrities enjoy doing on their time off and where they enjoy going for their favorite film and TV shows. And I'll be back with them shortly. Another big thank you to this week's sponsor, Greg Antonell and his company, Mickey Travels, LLC. Check them out at mickeytravels.com, please. Please also follow me on Twitter at Virgin Traveler and follow my podcast. If you like it, I would love it if you would leave a review. If you don't like it, email me and tell me why and what I could do to make it better. I'd love to hear it. Don't forget to order a copy of my book on Amazon, On Location, A Film and TV Lover's Travel Guide. You can also check out Oblong Books, O-B-L-O-N-G, in Rhinebeck, New York. If you go to their website, they actually have some signed copies of my book. So if you want an autographed version, you can call them or, or order it through them, and you'll get my little signature in there. So until next time, this is Lisa Iannucci of Real Travel. See you next time, and get out and travel.